It's a hot mic. Let's turn it. There you go. That should be right there. This should be right here. Hi. Hi. How are you? I hope you're happy. Whoa. What's going on there? Yes. Yes, I'll take that. Yes. Yes. A cold Mountain Dew would be great. Okay. Yes. Well, it's it's really a Mountain Dew. Diet Mountain Dew. Yeah. Um, Mountain Dew caught, gave me diabetes. I, that's what I'm going to say. I have diabetes. Um, so it's not that hard to figure that out. I mean, I'm a big guy. Pasty white fella sits on his butt most of the day. That's just the way it goes. It's a job hazard. And uh, back, you know, in your 20s, you know, when you're drinking Mountain Dew, uh, big gulps, you're not really thinking about diabetes. It's not, wasn't a thing back there in the 80s. Uh, <laughs> diabetes. Anyways. So, hey, how you doing? I hope you're doing great. It is hustleisthehack.com. It is the podcast to end all podcasts. My name is Pierre Halsabas, and uh, during this podcast, you are going to learn how to get your game on, your selling game. I am going to help you identify, acquire, and retain the most valuable business asset you have today. And what is that? That is customers, because without them, nothing happens. That's right. You're just a club of grumpy people hanging out, complaining about the boss and the pizza and and donuts and you know you're just you're not happy nothing happens until somebody sells something so get off your tail and go sell something it starts with customers and sadly it will all come to an end if you don't have any more customers so he who dies with the most customers wins how do i do this well we take the latest innovation in business and we take proven models and methods and i add a little pinch of my 30 years of selling IT. Yeah, that's information technology for you uh, dummies. (laughs) For the past 30 years, I've been doing that. I mix that all together in the pure stack of stuff. And you can read this out on my blog, hustleisthehack.com. And I spit out this amazing analysis all in the period of about 60 minutes. So that's pretty good. So sit back and enjoy our time together that's right hustle is the hack and that is the podcast that you're going to know and you're going to love you're just going to find it uh just fantastic so i'm just going to ask you to have a seat here in the sales cafe grab your cup of coffee i have my diet mountain dew uh, provided uh, to me by the uh pepsi bottling company and uh, they do well they do not sponsor this show but um they if they they should they should much Mountain Dew as I've drank in my lifetime. Uh, and I just spilled some. So that's exciting. Isn't that wonderful? So anyways, uh, so hey, um, it's been a little while. Yeah, it's been a bit, hasn't it? Sorry. Uh, sorry for the length on uh, getting the podcast. It's been trying to get this thing going. And uh, I started a new gig and man, I got busy. Holy moly. Uh, so I started a new gig at work. Uh, in the fall and it just got uh, busier and busier and busier and uh, just this ended up being a very difficult thing to kind of you know because you got to have a couple things to make a podcast work one is energy and uh, you know (laughs) doing 12 13 hour days uh, sometimes is not fun and then do that for about two months and uh, 
that's kind of what I've been been dealing with. So not complaining. Glad I have a job. It's just, uh, you know, yeah, priorities. And unfortunately, the podcast was on the bottom of the list. And so that's a bummer. So I, I, I hope to uh, let's get get the ball rolling. Uh, some time is freed up. It's kind of a one time deal for us. Um, just some really exciting things. It's not bad at all. It's just, uh, you know, it's, I have a life, uh, outside of work that I have to maintain. And so, uh, when you're doing, uh, all sorts of work and this is part of the deal, this is a hustle. I'm talking about the hustle, right? The hustle part and what that means. And for, uh, I'm, I'm willing to, to, to work and grind at a job, uh, uh, for a period of time. And, uh, you know, so you can do that. So sometimes it's, it's going to happen. Uh, you know, the Bible tells us that there's a time in the season for everything. There's a time to be born, a time to die, a time to be at peace, a time to go to war. I mean, we all have uh, different times and seasons in our lives and your career is going to be no different. And from every once in a while. Uh, you know, you're going to have to just, you, you know, <laughs> you're just going to have to uh, hunker down, uh, grab some courage, uh, a bunch of extra caffeine and uh, just power through. And sometimes, you know, I, you know, I like to think about um, this work smart uh, kind of attitude that a lot of people have. And, and that's true. You can work smart, whatever. Uh, but sometimes you just have to work hard. And, uh, you know, but it's part of the ethos that is part of me as part of my being raised in a, you know, a middle America, you know, blue collar family, my mom being a, you know, a bank teller, my bad dad being a truck driver. This is the kind of uh, ethos you are given, uh, which is get out and get some, you know, go, go do some work. There's no reason to be bored. I remember as a kid, I would say, Hey mom, I'm bored. I'm so bored, man. She said, go run around the house. You know, <laughs> my dad would say, if you got, if you're bored, uh, just let me know. I got, you know, the garage needs to be swept or something like that. There's always work to do. And, uh, later on when I met my grandfather, Towards the end of his life, uh, my my grandpa Itma, uh, he was out in uh, good old uh, Manhattan, just outside of Bozeman, Montana. He grew up on out there in the Wild West, and uh, you know, Dutch family, Dutch family. He was grew, grew up Dutch. Believe it or not, there's a giant Dutch community in Montana. Uh, because of the farming that's out there, the farming opportunities. And so all the Hollanders, um, a bunch of Hollanders uh, took up out there in the 18, 1890s in the turn of the century out there, if you can imagine them, uh, just about 20 years from Custer's last stand. You know, <laughs> think about it. There's uh, Hollanders from from uh, uh, taking the train across the 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 Great Plains and settling out there in, in uh, good old Bozeman, Montana area. Anyways, um, he, so he lived through the Depression, and he said, you know, um, I might not have get, gotten paid for it, but there was always work to do. And uh, so it's just like, wow, that just kind of sticks with you. It's that it's you. I realize that now as an adult later in my career, like those are the values that form your opinion and, and your habits as a child. And so, you know, uh, I, I think that served us well, served my family well, served me well, you know, that uh, – 
you know, I won't be outworked, you know, when it comes to competition and stuff like that. I won't lose because I didn't try. I won't lose a deal because I didn't give it 110% and uh, die on the field of battle. Like, I'm, <laughs> that's where I'm going. That's where I'm going with this. So, uh, and in fact, it's really interesting because that's kind of a little bit of our topic today. Today, I want to talk about strategy and tactics. And, uh, you know, right now we are, uh, it is in the middle part of March and uh, in, ni- in 2022. And we're marking this time right now because of the bravery of the Ukrainians and the fight that they are in. They are in the fight of their lives against um, the Russian military and the Russian military might that's just across the border. And so we're going to talk uh, a little bit about a military um, terminology that um, sales and business people use all the time, which is strategy and tactics. And we want to talk about kind of what the difference is between strategy and tactics and a building a what uh, we we might refer to as a problem solving framework, a framework for us to be able to uh, take on any problem in business and uh, build a framework to solve those problems. And uh, it's, there's really three things that we want to do. And so we're going to talk about that. Um, what are objectives, strategy, and tactics? And uh, those are often used interchangeably uh, uh, in terms of terminology. When you listen to people talk about it, they use the same term all the time. And uh, But we want to learn actually from our friends in the military that actually have really define this because people's lives are on the line if they don't execute uh, uh, both a uh, objective strategy and tactics. And so we're going to, we'll walk through that today. Strategy and tactics is, uh, uh, so that's, uh, that's the idea for today. And we're going to spend some time with that. And we are also going to um, enjoy uh, a little bit of the um, stack of stuff because we got to catch up on a couple different things that are happening in the news. Uh, and things like that that are happening in the broader business community around us and how that impacts. And we can uh, leverage that to take advantage and get ready for the next wave of work uh, and opportunity. So we'll talk about that uh, real soon. So let's just uh, take a moment, though, for a word from our sponsor, which it's who's our sponsor this week. Oh, that's right. Anchor. So let's uh, let's take a, a moment, a little break real quick, and then we'll be right back and we'll get, get right on that. Hey, guys, I'm always getting asked about my podcast and and how do you get to make it and, you know, what tools are you using to get online and get your ideas out there? Well, Let me tell you, if they haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, it's by far the easiest way to make a podcast today. Everything you need is all in one place. Let me explain. Anchor has the tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And then hosting, which is kind of actually technically relatively complicated. They do all of that stuff and distribute all that stuff. Guess what? For F-R-E-E, they do all of that. It's uh, Spotify, you'll see your podcast show up on Apple, on Stitcher, all these great platforms. Everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And best of all, did I mention that it's free? So here's how you do it. You go to the Anchor app, go to the App Store, just put in Anchor. 
or you can go to the anchor.fm and you can get started right away. Thanks to our sponsor, Anchor. Okay, we're back. We are back. We are back. I hope you're having a good time. We, we're, we're back to where, uh, well, we're back, as they say. All right. Uh, like, uh, to, as I was mentioning, we're going to talk about strategy and tactics. So sit back, uh, grab your grab your coffee mug, and uh, let's talk about this for a sec. A strategy and tactics in everyday conversations, you know, are often used interchangeably to describe how to win a sport or battle or business, right? But once you take a closer look at strategy versus tactics, it becomes easier to understand their similarities and differences. You know, both are key to helping your business track their progress and achieve success. And so really the big question is, what in the heck is the difference between a strategy and a tactic? It's uh, it's an easy and memorable way to really understand the difference is to tackle it like this. In a business, and uh, the employees must Think strategically, but act tactically. That's right. Strategy is really the plan um, is uh, to achieve a goal, right? That's the plan to achieve a goal. That's a strategy. Tactics are the actions that we take to achieve that goal, right? So strategy is the plan and tactics are the action. Uh, Strategy is difficult to change once it's set in motion, Tactics really are easy to adjust depending on the changing circumstances. So if I have a, if I have a, a strategy, that defines the tactics and not the other way around. We don't take the action and define the strategy by how we're going to do something. We need to know what we're going to do first before we actually start doing stuff. So, um, you, you know, you win the battle. Uh, through tactics, but you need a strategy to inform the tactics is what it comes down to, right? So we might have objectives. So, um, uh, you know, in the military framework, we have objectives and then we have a strategy for that and then we develop tactics. So, um, you know, we understand the flow of things that way, that uh, we have this kind of objective or overall strategy. We put a strategy in place to go and do that. And then we develop tactics, which is the very specific components of what we're doing. Strategies, you know, it's there's obviously a difference between them. Uh, They're very complementary to each other. We need one and the other. Their ability to launch a successful strategy is really dependent on the right tactics to achieve something. And so I might have a strategy to do thing, but if I don't execute properly on how to do that thing, uh, then it's going to fail. If I have a really crappy strategy, but excellent uh, tactics to achieve that crappy strategy, at least I will get a crappy, <laughs> my, get my crappy strategy uh, obtained um, and do it. So, so this is um, kind of the important two parts. You know, without the right strategy in place, a company or an organization might struggle to develop tactics that prove successful or actionable. So strategy is what puts the company in the right direction. Tactics define how do you get there. 
in this relationship, tactics can't exist without strategy. And a strategy goes unrealized without tactics. So one is the plan. The other is the action. Think about it. And uh, there's a there's an old uh, Japanese saying that, uh, you know, kind of kind of goes along the idea that vision without an action is a dream. That's what a dream is. You have a vision in your head and you see the thing happening and you it, everything goes, you know, um, or monsters come in or whatever. But, you know, that's that is what a strategy is. It, it is a dream without action. Uh, and so, um, you know, strategy without action is a dream, but action without strategy is a nightmare. Let's look at that. I'm going to say that that's our topic, you know, strategy, uh, without action is a dream action without strategy is a nightmare. Uh, this is hard for many people to think some people value action. And so they just look, Oh, there's the, there's the top of the hill. Let's go take it. And Hey, there's a bunch of people over here on my team and we're just going to go run up the hill. And we get up the hill and, uh, we, as we approach the top of the hill, the enemy pops its head up and shoots us all dead, right? So this is because we didn't have a good, um, we took action, but we didn't have any sort of strategy for taking the hill. Our objective was take the hill, but we didn't have a strategic plan, uh, of how we were going to do that. And so we had the tactics of taking the hill, but then in the end we got creamed because we didn't do all the other things that needed to be done to secure the hill. So what is strategy? So think of strategy as a method, an approach, a series of moves for arriving at a specific outcome, long-term goals or desired results. Strategic planning is a foundation for guiding those key decisions being made by individuals or teams in an organization. So regardless of the type of business or industry, strategic planning operates at a pretty high level, right? So we uh, often have senior leadership meetings or we have, you know, team meetings or whatever. And we're trying to often develop this strategic planning initiative or something on this order. Like, how do we define the business and what are our missing uh, things that we need to know? And all of these, you know, high level ideals that we want to move forward. And uh, so this is kind of the idea of strategic planning because of the strategies are, you know, end up affecting almost every aspect of the business, even areas of the business that might at first seem unrelated to the original strategy. So there's a couple core areas of business strategy that you better have something on. You better have a strategy for, okay? And uh, I'm going to go through those. Those are about five core um, things that are strategies that you need to find. Now, we're going to talk about this in a uh, commercial sense. But if I'm in a nonprofit, this would also work because there is a little bit of competition when it becomes when I'm in a nonprofit. If I'm doing exactly the same thing that somebody else is already doing, it's hard then to kind of distinguish your organization to make it stand out in the area where I'm doing fundraising. And uh, so that I believe this is just as important in the nonprofit space as it is in the public or in the public you know, company. 
in, in the commercial space. And that first one is a competitive advantage. What is your strategy for a competitive advantage? And so when you're doing that strategic planning um, summit and you're getting away, uh, you, what you want to do is reveal the ways to differentiate your product or your service um, that you're providing or your nonprofit service uh, among rivals. Like your business has uh, discovered its strategic advantage because we have, you know, this or we can do this thing that nobody else can do. And it can be as basic as offering customers the lowest price. So let's say you're going to be, I'm going to, we're going to be the lowest price in the market. That's our competitive advantage. Well, that is, that is a competitive advantage. And so as I begin to go down that road and develop tactics for lowering costs so I can maintain margins, so I can stay in business, um, you know, we're going to, you know, have a race to the bottom. We're going to not be beat. We're going to have a tactic of advertising a price guarantee and all of this kind of stuff like that. That is a, um, you know, that's a tactic or a strategy that a company can have as a, hey, we're going to be the lowest um, price possible. You know, sometimes um, that might be um, really great because um, the market might be flooded with high end products. And so maybe I'm just going to go on the low. So to maintain that kind of viable competitive advantages, then you have to adapt your strategies around that, right? Uh, when competitors arise or consumers explore other alternatives, your organization really needs to provide more benefit or some superior service to justify that price. So, um, you know, try one of the things that you when you're doing something like this, trying to develop a competitive advantage. Uh, one of the tools it has been around for a long uh, time and it's one of the easiest ways to start. It is um, called a SWATO analysis or a SWOT analysis, S-W-O-T, strength, weakness, opportunities, and threats. And so this is a, a, a way to um, create a, a matrix, basically, and at the top part, we're going to list our strengths uh, in that top uh, quadrant. And then to the right of that, we're going to list the weaknesses of, of something. And then below strengths, we're going to list opportunities. And to the right of that, right under weakness, we're going to list threats. That's a strength, weakness, opportunity, threat. It's a very basic format and it allows you a framework to be able to get your team together or just do this planning yourself and look at what um, let's say if I want to analyze my organization, I'm going to go, hey, what are some of my strengths? What are the strengths in the market that we have? Where are our organization's best um, assets? What uh, is it our customers? Is it our product? Uh, what is it about us that makes us special and unique that is very hard to find out in the market? And these are things that are helpful and primarily things that are internal to our organization, something that we have created that may be a product, it may be a unique intellectual piece of property, whatever that may be, that is your strength. That's the core of what you can do, what you're delivering to the market. And the next one is weaknesses. I'm looking at things that are internal 
that not very good. Instead of being helpful, they're harmful internal things like weaknesses. These are weaknesses like um, we have a hard time retaining people or our, our turnover is, um, is not good or our, our people are highly dissatisfied. Um, our product is old um, in the marketplace. Um, we're undercapitalized. These are different internal weaknesses that are harmful to our organization. And then below strengths, these are helpful things, but these are external. Where are helpful external things? Those could be new markets. Hey, if we just took our product and you know what? We just translated the instruction manual into Spanish and we started selling through a dealer network in Latin America, we could open up a whole new area of business for us without cha- without a big investment. So that would be an external helpful, and that's where opportunities grow. These are upselling, cross-selling opportunities, opportunities to partner um, with external organizations, opportunities uh, that, you know, would maybe improve your position in the market. And the same thing, what are harmful things that are external? We would call those threats. That might be, hey, there's a new competitor in the market or, uh, you know, external threats like the economy. How is how is uh, right now if you're looking at your um, your product or service as a company, you better be looking at the macroeconomics of what's going on right now. Gas prices are skyrocketing here in the United States. People's disposable income in the U.S. is going way down by the tune of close to 10 percent this last year. And so and it's going to go higher uh, um, COVID, it was a giant harmful external threat for folks. Um, but when we looked external for some companies, it created opportunities. So it's really interesting when you put them on this matrix of helpful and hurtful, external and internal, things that are external sometimes are both a threat and an opportunity. It's really interesting when you do this kind of analysis. But this is one way that to help you inform your organization to develop a competitive advantage. You basically have um, doing this type of analysis. We do this with products and we do this with services. You can do this by department. There's lots of different ways to do this, but it's a nice framework to be able to use a SWOT analysis uh, to uh, to um, to to kind of collect all the ideas there, right? So, so that's one thing that you need to have a, a core facet of your business strategy. What is our competitive advantage that we have? And that's, that's core to what we're doing. How about the top level resource allocation? That's number two on the list. So resource allocation is a little, another kind of component of this that needs to be part of any sort of plan that you're doing, any sort of strategy that you're going to try to implement. You need to know the resources. What are the, like, so where should your organization focus most of its time, energy, and resources to secure the best return, right? for that uh, investment of time, energy, and resources, or money, for example. Which tasks and activities should the employees or teams prioritize throughout the week? What are those? So you're looking at the strategic planning around the organization's resource allocation. So you have like $100. Imagine you have $100 to spend. 
And so where am I going to spend that? What 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 bets am I going to put it on the table? Does that mean I'm going to go and hire some more people? Or does that mean I'm going to increase the training of people? Or we're going to reduce our margins so there's going to be a cost to that um, to maintain the same level of profitability. If I reduce margins, that might mean I have to increase volume. So resource allocation really allows us to make the most of resources that happen to be at our disposal. So um, maybe resource allocation might be go get more resources. <laughs> but if I am planning Pierre Holsebus myself, if I'm doing myself, this is exactly the same process that I'm going through. Um, this is why the podcast took a backseat to work in it for a short period of time. My resource allocation, um, you just, you know, you have that $100. I don't have any more than that. I only have so many hours in the day. I have only so much energy in my physical being uh, that has to be recharged, I, that I have to allocate not only to work, but I have to refresh myself uh, with my, I have to be with my family. I have all other sorts of obligations. And so I can't just um, spend it all on one thing and I can't go beyond, you know, the 100%. And so when people say, hey, I'm giving you 110%, what that means is I'm taking away from another resource that I have because you only have a fixed amount of resources. And when you're in a business, you you know this really well. Like you only have so many people. There's only so many hours in the day and uh, you have to determine uh, what you're going to do with uh, all those resources. So this is part of the strategy. What resources do I have and where am I going to allocate them? Right now in what's going on, um, we're in like the third week of this fight in the Ukraine. I'm just watching. It's totally fascinating to see the modern kind of battlefield tactics um, come up and see exactly how they're doing it because the the level of disclosure and where people are and and different um, thing is uh, pretty clear exactly what's happening. There's really not a lot of uh, hidden things that are happening. It's pretty clear exactly what's happening. And so um, you can see what's going on right now is the Ukrainian army, they are like just pestering the Russians um, out in the field. They're, they're doing tactics to slow them down in the field, but they haven't committed their forces to full-on assault of the Russians out in the field. Um, this is a, um, a problem right now because the Russians can stay where they are and they're getting harassed. Yes, and then they're experiencing a bunch of losses in the field, but they haven't seen the full bright brunt of the, the Ukrainian um, military yet. And uh, they are hunkering down and preparing for an invasion of the main city, Kiev or Kiev. <laughs> I grew up with Kiev turkey or Kiev chicken, chicken Kiev. So I just call it Kiev, but now they call it Kiev. That's the right thing to say, apparently. Anyways, uh, so, you know, they're, they're, they're allocating their resources to in a more defensive position than an offensive right now. And uh, so they're, um, if the, the Russians um, attack, they're going to really get, um, you know, um, a, a boatload of bullets right, <laughs> thrown at them. 
uh, from that standpoint. And the Russians, their allocation of resources is to, they want to stand off. They basically want to get out about 40 miles, 25 to 40 miles away from their target and then just lob artillery in on the target. And that's their strategy. That's how they, they do it. And so their, their resources and allocation is all there. And so, um, you know, they're, they're, they are reserved in the way that they, um, once they get set up, then it's going to be, you know, all hell will be anyways. Um, it's not going to be fun. It's going to be horrific. Actually. It's sad what's going on over there. And anyways, so uh, resource allocations is this uh, part of the strategy that's really critical. We want to determine the scope of the project. Like, what are we going to do? Um, uh, you know, the scope of that strategy before any resources are going to get allocated. Our strategy has to take into account if the project is too big or too small or how long it we plan on ta- it taking. Right. And uh, we want to so we want to determine the scope. We want to identify the available resources. You know, what what chips do I have to play with? What are <laughs> how much of my hundred dollars uh, can I can I spend? Uh, so what's my available pool of resources? My strategic planning is going to really help determine how many employees, how much space, other resources, etc. Uh, that I need before I take action. So I need to know what are my available resources are. I want to consider the big picture, right? Uh, no strategy is perfect, of course. Strate- uh, strategic planning, you know, involves a constant awareness of the changing state of resources and shifting project priorities. And uh, that is, you know, this is, for me, I believe this is big deal. We want to keep track of that big picture. One of the things uh, that we say, uh, people say all the time, I love this saying, we lose the forest for the trees. We look too, sometimes too too tactically, too narrowly focused on the short-term win and not winning the whole fight. And that's the big thing that we're, you know, we have to look at the big picture. Think about that, where we're going to go. What's the long-term vision for this? Um, So no strategy is going to be perfect, but we want to uh, have that awareness of the changing state, not only of the resources, but the priorities of the project itself. So we got to keep it, our finger, so to speak, on the pulse of that. That's why that uh, part of the podcast that I share so often is I call it the stack of stuff, which is this considering the big picture. Everything that we're doing today now in most every business or organization is Global. It has a global impact. Um, your product and your service not only have an awesome opportunity to go global and be part of a global economy, or it ha- um, it is uh, being part of. Uh, it is a threat to you. It is a threat to you uh, because your organization, you know, it's might be easy to disrupt with uh, foreign competitors coming into your market. Uh, Just look at every taxi company in the world right now trying to compete against Uber and Lyft. Um, So considering that big picture, what's the meta of what's going on in the world around us and how that impacts us? And so um, if you don't think that's important, if you don't think, uh, you know, keeping track of the meta of, you know, the bigger economy is. uh, I have a really sad story here in Grand Rapids that where I live, um, there was a restaurant um, called The Bob. 
the big old building or the big, um, yeah, the big old building is uh, what it was stood for, the Bob. And it was this iconic restaurant that was built in downtown Grand Rapids uh, and has been in business for probably close to 25 or 30 years. And it was the most popular place downtown Grand Rapids. It uh, it was just rock and roll. And the way that they did it was just fas- fascinating because it was one company that 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 uh, Gilmore um, Industries, this one um, restaurant chain that owned the building. And inside of that building, it's like this four story building and they're. Their concept was so cool because you would go there and they had like a steakhouse. Uh, so they had the Judson Steakhouse and then they had a pizza joint in there and then they had a fancy kind of sit down uh, restaurant. And they had a couple different bars in there that was like one was like a techno bar and the other was like a hillbilly rock and roll bar and uh, they had pool tables on one floor and then on the top floor they had a um, a rental hall that they were always renting out for weddings and restaurants and events and this place was just rocked all the time and then they added a concert venue right next to it about four years ago that um, hired that they could put like 2,000 people in and they would have big acts that would come in so this place was right at the heart of Grand Rapids right Right across from the big arena, this place um, was in the state of Michigan, the number two bar um, for generating tax revenue off liquor in the state of Michigan. The number one was the Metro Airport in Detroit. (laughs) So this is the largest private bar in the state of Michigan. And they just closed their doors and they closed their doors. And it wasn't because of a mark part of it was the market i will say that but the majority of it was because of an external threat the big picture of covid came and disrupted their business they kept having to pay the rent and insurance and they were trying to bring concerts in um, but they they lost staff they weren't able to keep up customers weren't coming in they weren't selling enough liquor i mean it was a problem and so down they went uh, and covid killed that company at that or a place of business and um, it is closed now. Um, so we, we, they weren't ready for that. They didn't have the cash reserves to, to, to hold out. Um, they didn't modify their strategy when COVID came back. Um, so they didn't really change the strategic way that they executed. Basically they turned all those restaurants back on soon as COVID came back. And so their costs went through the roof. There's a bunch of different things that happened uh, seemingly, at least from the external, um, you know, I don't know. I don't know anybody that works there personally. Um, it's just looking at the external. But we can all think of a restaurant that we loved or enjoyed going to that did not survive COVID. And and this is what happens. Those big pictures in, in, impact us a lot. So when I talk, hey, hey, guess what? We're going to, you know, there's going to be a, bu- a bunch of regulations coming down about electric vehicles. That's going to become a big deal. That is going to be a big deal, not only in the area of actual work uh, uh, and how people commute to work and how, you know, they drive around. But our businesses now are going to have to accommodate vehicle charging stations. If I run a hotel chain, I'm going to have people that are going to seek out my place to make sure I'm going to start getting reviews on not having enough 
uh, EV chargers in my parking lot to take care of my customers. What am I going to do if I, if people show up and they're not willing to uh, to do that? Uh, to to uh, there's no place for them to charge. So these are important uh, important things to think about the big picture and uh, putting together again that resource allocation plan, a contingency plan. So an over dependence on people. And uh, resources can be quickly derailed in a project if something external happens. So what's happening right now? Dude, uh, we're looking at huge inflation uh, and we're looking at um, a high demand in workplace because we made it so attractive for a certain class of people to be able to not have to work. Uh, a lot, bunch of people just stopping working. And so there's a big crunch for um, talented staff. That means, guess what's going to happen? Prices and wages are going to go up. You're going to have to pay your people more to stay. And you're going to have to be proactive about that. So you're going to have to have a contingency plan that's part of your strategy that allocates additional uh, contingencies if what happens if we lose key people in this organization. Um, so when you look at talk to military planners, I love reading these books about military planning. Um, you know, there's plan A and then there's plan B, plan C, uh, plan D. When you are a magician and you're doing those fancy card tricks and you have like um, you fan the cards out and you say pick a card and somebody picks one in the middle, not one at the end. So that means you're going to have a different card trick because if they would have picked it. Uh, the card at the top or the card at the the bottom, you kind of know you have a strategy for those. But if they pick one in the middle, you have a totally different strategy. When you start, you're not telling them what you're going to do, but you basically have three or four different card tricks that you could do right now. And so you're fanning the cards out. Pick any card. Now, okay, depending on where they pick the cards and where they stick that card back in the deck, I have all these. And the terminology that they use in magic uh, tricks is uh, magicians use is called outs. You have different outs to the card trick. And as you keep um, proceeding with the banter or the patter and the person interaction, those outs um, get narrower, narrower and narrower until you get to the final reveal of, of your magic trick that you're going to do. And so, um, so uh, often what you're doing is actually you're starting and you have five different magic tricks you could do, but depending on how the person acts, you know, you're going to have a, you're going to end up with a magic trick depending on, on the person that you meet. I find this really fascinating. It's one of the most fascinating parts of going to Blue Man Group. That is the whole thing of Blue Man Group. When you go see those guys, Blue Man Group. Have you ever gone? If you haven't, you got to go. I've, I've seen them many times now. I love Blue Man Group. Not only the music is awesome, the music is just incredible. Um, but the thing that these the folks are is street performers. And they have this down where they basically, <laughs> during parts of the show, they totally put their performance at risk. They go up and they, uh, they'll they pull somebody up from the audience and they'll start doing an activity, something really simple. Like one day I was around Christmas time, we went to Chicago and saw them in Chicago. And so they pull a gal out of the audience and then they get up on stage and there's the three blue men and then this woman is in the middle and they start pouring cereal. That's it. That's all they do. It's all about the cereal and milk in the cereal. And so they have all these different jokes. And depending on what she does, they have these different, you know, kind of bits that they can do. And they just totally respond to her 
and what, you know, she does. So if she eats, they eat. If she like spits it out, they spit it out. Or one of them will, she'll eat something and he'll eat something and then spit it out. Like it's a funny joke. Or, you know, if she gets up and touches one of them, they touch her. And then somebody plays romantic music in the background. And now they go down a whole thing of the two of them getting married. Uh, it, you know, I've seen the same bit done in Florida and it's a, it has a totally different outcome if, you know, the person is different. So it just depends. They react. So anyways, it's just an example of a contingency plan that's in place. And our, our friends in the military, like I said, do a really, really great job of this. They have, um, you know, they go in like we're going to go accomplish this this um, goal, we're going to go in and, you know, like take over this, we're going to go snatch somebody, a bad guy. We're going to go snatch a bad guy. And so they have to have to, they have to get in. That's easy. Getting in is not that hard. You kind of, kind of get into the, into the place, but then you have to get out. How do you get your people out? And so once you, you know, get into the fight and, and you get the guy that you're going to do, like you have plan A to get out, but you have like other things that you could do. Like you have a like three different exfiltration um, plant places that you could go. You know the you know Alpha Beta Delta sites that uh, you know are all geographically kind of north, south, and east that you could go to. That depending on what happens uh, after you pick the guy up, what if all the enemy comes from the west? Well, you want to flee to the east, so then you're going to take the east you know, um, exit. Uh, and then if all the exits are done, you're going to hunker down into some place that you've already got. And then somebody else is going to come like tomorrow and pick you up. Like you have all these different plans, uh, uh, for contingencies and you've got, um, you know, resources at, at all of them and they're all staffed and they're all ready to go. And then, you know, then you execute. And so, um, you know, obviously one of those scenarios is going to work out. The other people are just there just in case. It's amazing. So you put that together, a plan, but you need to have uh, your strategy should have what ifs. You have to do that. So the the strategy just is in, just inform you where your organization should focus its attention on. But it also, as you can see in all these different components, where you're wasting time and resources and money. So strategies really provide you then that clear set of choices. And that's when you're looking at your resources, your money, your people, your time and energy. That's where you're going to go. So it's like, hey, we want to do these 18 different things. I want to have a podcast and I want to, this is me all the time. This is like right now, I, I started this this fiscal year with three big ideas and I'm down to two. You know, I have to ditch one of them. I want to write a book for the work for work and I just cannot pull it together um, with the resources that I have. I just don't have enough time in the day to do quality work in other areas and do a book at the same time. And I'm just so desperate to get that book done because I really want to have it done, but I can't pull the trigger on it because, you know, I don't have the resources available to do that. So your business has that same situation where you've got only a limited amount of resources. So my podcast business, same thing. I only have a, a limited amount of resources. It's a, it, I was listening to another content creator a, a little while ago talk about this, and uh, they are involved in um, books and podcasts and um, speaking, and they do a lot of different things, and um, very well-known person. But the, he says, every one of my ventures makes money or it doesn't. 
Like they, he doesn't like put it all in a pool and let his speaking um, funds subsidize his podcast. His podcast has to make money the same way that a speaking stuff. The book work has to make money. So that's his his business like plan is got that. So he's you know so if that podcast isn't making money, then he's done with the podcast. Like it's really interesting. A lot of a lot of people don't look at it that way. Uh, especially if you have that hustle mindset, sometimes it's hard to give things up. It's hard to kind of um, go go and like, mm, I either A, need help on this and look for other ways to leverage the work of others or um, have that strategic plan just go, nope, we're not going to do that right now. We're going to put that on the shelf. So that's hard to do, let me tell you, uh, When especially if you're very driven and, and uh, very, let's say, have a growth mindset and, and all of that. It's really hard to give up those dreams sometimes, but you have to really take that look in the mirror and go, do I have the resources to complete this and have an honest assessment? And really talk to your board of directors. Like if And if you're in a small business and that's, you know, the board of directors might be you and your spouse. But these are the questions you need to ask. And these are the kind of roundtable type of conversations you have with your friends uh, uh, that uh, that are really that love you or like care about your business. Like, can we do this? What do you think? And just having that kind of external perspective sometimes can help keep us from over allocating or overextending our resources. The one thing you're going to find really quickly in life is if you overextend your resources, your body will tell you you're done. You know, stress, this is what happens is you can, this is why you can only sustain stuff for a short period of time before something gives, something is going to give. And whether that is stress and an ulcer, um, you know, weight problems, your hair falls out, anxiety takes over, fear, uncertainty and doubt will uh, uh, creep in and make you ineffective at everything. And so your body and your whole person can only sustain like uh, expending that 105% for a short period of time. So, you know, you have to balance that. You have to find that balance there. So, all right. Anyways, number three on the list uh, for me is, you know, that's where, uh, so we've done, let me, let me summarize here. We've, uh, uh, we're talking really about those core facets of a business strategy. One is that competitive advantage. What's my competitive advantage? What's my top level resource allocation? You know, if I'm in the software business, you know, that means my resource allocation might be, you know, 20, 30% of our people are going to be in the business of development. That's 30% of our time is going to be spent on development. And, uh, you know, 10% of our resources are going to be in marketing and, uh, and sales. And, and that leaves, you know, the balance of the folks are going to be in our partner development management or something, something like that. You know, you're going to come up with this resource allocation strategy, um, looking at the full scope of the, the whole work. Number three core business strategy to develop is this long-term vision and objectives, right? A strategy that isn't uh, working toward a specific vision or an objective is nothing more than a wish or kind of aspirations. So um, this is another difference between strategy and tactics. Every aspect of an integrated strategy must actively contribute toward the long-term vision of the business. 
So, you know, we've, we looked at strategies like, hey, I'm going to, you know, I need to, my strategy uh, for, it, um, you know, long term vision for us is we need uh, more, uh, we need to increase the volume of our sales. That's a, that's a long term vision that we have. We, we need to grow a um, certain amount of your, it, let's, let's look at whatever market we're in. So let's say the market that I'm in, the, the, um, aggregated growth of the market is 20%. So let's say my long-term goal as an organization is to increase my sales by 20% every year because that's what the industry grows by. So I know if I'm keeping up with that 20% growth and I'm keeping up with my competitors and I'm growing at the pace that the customer demand is growing. So I'm doing good if I can grow by 20%. That's just average growth, right? That's just keeping up with the Joneses. That's not doing anything beyond uh, just taking advantage of resources uh, or uh, opportunities as they come my way uh, at a 20% growth rate. So that might be my long-term vision uh, and objective. And so now I can start to develop some strategic plans around, okay, I need to increase my sales force by 20% or I need to in, um, in, uh, engage more online marketing and increase the per sales um you know, per person sales goals by 20% next year. Uh, and how are we going to do that? So, so this is where the strategy, not the tactics, better help communicate the direction to the team. So this is where the strategy comes in by including forecasting and the strategy planning and objectives become more aligned then uh, with uh, those strategies. And that long-term vision really drives then this strategic plan that you're going to execute uh, with tactics, right? So I've got that plan or vision, and then we're getting down to tactics from there, right? That's the the thing. So as we're saying, we have this objective, and then we can put a, pre- a strategy in place, and then we can develop tactics. You know, and uh, this is uh, whoop. So that's uh, that's key to this uh, this whole situation here to have that. Um, uh, a long-term plan. So number four on the list for me to really develop a core business strategy, one, competitive advantage. Number two, top-level resource allocation. Number three, long-term specific, long-term vision and objectives. And number four on the list really is really understand the market, audience, and products that we're selling. So what is the market that we're selling into? Do we know what that market is? Is it a person? Um, Is it a set of uh, commercial customers? Is it a government? Is it a school system? What is it that defines the market that I'm selling into? Know that like it's um, if I'm in a restaurant, my local um, local one of my favorite local places has been there for 75 years or whatever uh, since my dad was a kid. Um, Rainbow Grill, right? So their market is the city that I live in. That's the market. Their audience and product and market, they know that every day that there is a certain demographic of people uh, that are going to drive, you know, five miles to this place. Their market is very small uh, to it's just here in town. They're not selling online. They're not doing anything external like that. Um, and they sell to that. So they understand who the quote unquote audience is for that. Um, they also understand the pressures of the market because about three miles from where they live is a giant mall that went that went in many years ago. And so, you know, this little mom and pop place now are threatened by the the 
the places down the street, all the big giant um, restaurant chains that are can outprice them and have a deeper menu and all of this. But he has, you know, loyal customers. He's got customer loyalty. So uh, it's really interesting. It's really interesting to see kind of the the understanding of the market and audience, also the products that service those. So, you know, restaurants are really great at understanding this um, because over time you get feedback every day, basically on the consumption of products and you can see what you have more of and, and run out of, and you can really understand that product mix and respond to it live in real time. Basically the next day, I was like, Oh, I better not make as much meatloaf because the meatloaf wasn't any good. Like that is the type of real time feedback you don't get in a lot of businesses. They get it instantly. And so they're able to develop a product mix over tens of thousands of choices customers make over the period of a year. You can develop a really good product mix. And this is one thing in a business you really have to understand. Uh, how your product mix matches up with the market and changes in the markets and audiences. So this is part of a strategy um, thing you've got to really develop. You really have to know what that market is, what the behavior growth uh, of, uh, of it is, who the audience is for that. What is the, so when I talk about market, it's just like, what is the broader picture? Who are my competitors? Who are the people that uh, sell into that, um, that industry or market? And that defines that market. And where do you fit in that? You know, how are you compared um, broadly uh, in uh, the, and what is the trend of that market? How does it grow and how does it shrink? Where are opportunities in that market? So understanding the market is critical and having a strategy that addresses that. Also informing the audience or customers, like what is the audience that you have, the full customer like that you could get? Who is that? Uh, who is that? Who loves your products or who listens, who influences that? You might have uh, folks, and I'm in this business, um, in the software business, when you sell software to businesses, uh, which I do on during my day job, the audience I have is not just the end users of that software. They're actually not the ones often making the decisions, believe it or not. It's their bosses and the owners of those companies and also external um, external uh, consultants and businesses that provide the installation and configuration services and build the complementary products that go along for that audience. So the audience of end users, let's say if I'm selling software into a retail store system, the, the users or the audience uh, is all the, let's say, the management of the retail store company, not the users of the point of sale system. It's really interesting. It's really interesting. That's one of the interesting things about the business um, software. So you not only have users, but you also have the influence of uh, the off audience influencers that are out there. So an example for, for what I do, because I'm trying to influence and increase the sales of a particular product in at, at the company that I work for, I work for Microsoft. Um, you know, my audience isn't just the end users of that software. It is the influencers that go into um, informing the decisions to help influence a customer's buying process. So those could be people that are partners. That could be people that in the media. There's a lot of people in the audience that I sell to. 
And they're not just um, the users, not just the users. In fact, the majority of the people that we're selling to are not users. They are the user's bosses. They are the people that own the company. They are the consultants, like I said, that go and install the thing and sell the software. So it's a lot of interesting things that we have to do out there to understand who the audience is. And then the product, too, of course. What is the product? What's the life cycle of the product? What's the roadmap of the product? Um, these are strategies. All So you have to have a strategy for every one of these markets, audiences, and products is kind of what I'm saying here in number four. All combined show you really that strategy defines the markets to pursue, which audience to persuade, and which products to promote, knowing and having a strategy around who those personas are and who the people and uh, kind of places and the things that you're going to sell. The fifth one to have, and the last one, really is a positioning of your brand or your um, idea. When people say your name or when they say your product, you know, are people aware of that? Where is your, con- where is their conscious, their collective consciousness of you? And uh, where do you fit? So some companies are great at this. They have a great brand. They have crappy products, but the brand is awesome and people buy it uh, because of the brand and the brand um, itself has value to it. Uh, In fact, I I always find this pretty fascinating. I I live in Michigan and Michigan was the home of Zenith and people are like Zenith. That sounds oddly familiar. Uh, There's another company out there called Bell and Howell. These were big brands in the 60s and 70s and have brand recognition. The companies have long since gone out of business. They don't exist. Zenith went bankrupt years ago. It's like, um, uh, but the brand still exists. So somebody, all that's left now of Zenith is um, the logo and the name Zenith. And they license that out to companies, let's say China, that want to build an electronic product. And they put, can we put Zenith's name on that and sell it in the United States? And they're like, sure. So that'll cost you, you know, $3 a product. They charge typically a royalty for that. And um, so there's no um, there's no Zenith headquarters anymore. There's no place. But that is distilled down the value of the brand. Zenith means something to a bunch of people in the United States because they grew up looking at Zenith televisions and Zenith radios. And so they have this association with kind of nostalgic uh, products for that are in the electronic space. So and we see a lot of that stuff. But anyways, that's what we're saying. You should have a strategy around your brand. What uh, what are you doing? Um, what's the playbook? What's the roadmap? You know, how do you how do you reinforce your brand? Where does your brand show up? And uh, one of the brands that I love is Star Wars. Honestly, um, Lucas was kind of one of the brilliant part of what Lucas has done over the years, right from the beginning. He didn't go after he. It seemingly he kind of did. In boxing, they call this the rope-a-dope. He did the rope-a-dope branding model. What he did was basically he allowed people to go and have the stormtroopers do goofy things. And they showed their brand on weird television shows. And um, there, people went out and uh, made T-shirts with their, their some of the brand stuff on that. And they um, had their stormtroopers show up in marching bands and stuff like that. And so they let their brand get out there and they wanted to relay that this was this kind of playful thing. It was not to be super serious. 
early on that worked later on it it got um, once their merchandising took over, <laughs> that was over with. But if you look at the early stuff that they did to help land the brand position in the, the eyes of people, um, it was something that they did early on. They were kind of loose with the brand, and but that got it out there and they got momentum as a result of that. And they reinforced the brand in lots of odd places that you wouldn't have expected it to see, like the Donnie and Marie show or something like that. It was crazy. Just go look up the Donnie and Marie Osmond um, Christmas special uh, with Red Fox <laughs> and Star Wars. It's hilarious. And uh, so it's just funny. Uh, so they... Anyways, this is just interesting things that happen with brands. So strategic planning of the brand is really crucial. Um, it's that when you your brand story is what your customers will know you as. And so if you're trying to establish a brand that is trustworthy or it has a brand that is like reliable or one that is one of service, these are all things that can be um, carried through. And there's lots of ways to do that today. Now, with social media, especially the strategy of reinforcing a brand position in the market is not as hard as it used to be, although there's lots of noise because it is so easy to do. But it's not that hard to go and start curate, curating a brand image and a brand position in social media today. There's young people coming out of college that know how to do this. It's not that hard anymore to do, to set up a Twitter account or to set up a, um, you know, to hire a marketing agency to uh, get the right colors and uh, come up with the appropriate um, set of, you know, 500 pictures that you can now use over the next, you know, set of years to um, write little um you know, images on TikTok and stuff like that. So anyways, so having a brand position, you know, so those are all great things to do. So these are the five. Let me just pull, pull it back together here again. We're talking about the five core business strategies you need to have. What are the five of them? Number one, you need to have a strategy for understanding your advantage. What is your competitive advantage? What is your unique selling proposition that you're going to have? Number two on that list is, do you have a top level resource allocation plan? At the top level, you know, just imagine you only have $100. Where are you going to spend your $100? I don't have $101. You can't, you know, make, uh, you you know, uh, they can't, can't get blood out of a stone. So, you know, you only have X amount of day hours in the day and X amount of people and X amount of capital. It's not unlimited. And so you have to go through the discipline of coming up with a strategy to determine the scope of what you're going to do, the valuable uh, uh, availability of those resources. Um, What is the big picture? Do you have a contingency plan in place? Uh, Number three on the list is uh, that long-term vision. What is the long-term vision? What do we want to do when we grow up? Where are we going to be in five years? This is a uh, this is an important thing right now. Um, if you're in the sales game and you're selling, you're asking this question to every one of your customers. Do you have a long term vision, or are you just on your heels responding to what's going on right now? Because if you don't get a handle on where you're going to be in five years, you may not be around in five years. Like that's the the kind of um, uncertainty that's out there. Uh, with changes in technology that come in place. And if people don't have a, a, a long-term vision and set of objectives on how they're going to take advantage of technology in their business, somebody else is already doing that. And a new company will come in and just 
replace you because you are going to be replaced. You will be replaceable. So (laughs) what are you doing? What's your long-term vision and objective? Do you know your market audiences and products? Do you have a clear definition of those? And do you have a plan of maintaining and understanding what the shape, size of those markets, audiences, and do you have product roadmaps and a strategy underneath each one of them? And the last one is what is your brand strategy? So those are five things, right? Every every endeavor needs to have, whether you're a a public sector organization, whether you're selling widgets, doing a podcast, whether you're doing a nonprofit service, every one of those is required. You need to have a strategy for each one of those. So that's the strategy part. Now, what are tactics? Okay, again, this is this was my goal. So I'm going to come back right after this uh, little little break. We're going to take a little bit of a break here, and we are going to uh, come up with what is tactics. We're going to talk about tactics here in a sec. All right, we're back. Tactics. All right, tactics is a big deal. That is uh, a lot of tactics. That's a weird song, isn't it? Is that weird? That's a weird one. That's kind of a tr- That's kind of an interesting one. All right, so let's uh, let's let's get back into our sales cafe and uh, talk a little more. So you are listening to Hustle is the Hack. And uh, my name is Pierre Halsabus. Welcome back uh, to the podcast. Uh, we're going to go into tactics right now, uh, and so let's uh, let's see, pull up, try and pick. I'm pushing the wrong buttons here. There we go. It's my it's my cafeteria sound. There you go. There you go. And I was kind of missing that. So that's a that was like the uh, I want to just make that happen. Magic. Anyways, that's the uh, that's the. the the streets, uh, the street cafe. Anyway, so what is a tactic? What is strategy versus a tactic, right? So tactics are specific activities or actions that are taken by an organization to fulfill its strategic aims. Like, so those are the actions. Again, action without vision is a nightmare. So if we're just, oh, hey, we're people of action and we're out here doing stuff. And so that's what's really important. And uh, no, that's not what's really important. First, we need to have a strategy. And when we have a strategy, then we can have tactics. And tactics work underneath. They're subordinate to. Because if I'm out here, you know, spinning my wheels, doing the work, quote unquote, and it doesn't uh, get me where I want to go, it's just a waste of time, energy and effort and resources. And in fact, it can be very risky. So sometimes the best thing is to do nothing. Sometimes doing nothing is better because if I don't have a plan yet, if I don't have a strategy of what we're going to do, just getting out and getting engaged in the fight is risky. That's very risky because I'm going to lose resources. Remember we had our resource plan and our resource strategy and understanding I only have X amount of resources. So I don't want to wreck my resources just because they need something to do, right? I need to have a plan before I send them into battle, right? So 
Uh, so that's tactics. These actions can be taken as a part of a series of tasks. Think about it that way. So it's the tasks. It's uh, we often call them a strategic goals, right? That might be another way. But when you compare strategy versus tactics, you'll find that tactics are grounded, are, are more on the ground than the strategies with the best practices and specific plans. Now, some organizations may refer to their tactics as the strategic initiatives or goals driven by purpose. A tactic is completed within a finite timeline and involves activities to finish and impacts to measure. If you can't measure it, you cannot manage it. You can't learn from it. So you have to put those together. These are short-term actions that help an organization achieve those larger strategic goals. So again, very easy to kind of step back and think about a battle, a battle of a military engagement. And we are going to go, let's have this military engagement of, I was uh, several years ago, I went with my son to Normandy, France. And uh, we wanted to go and visit Normandy Beach um, and be there. And it was a very sobering experience. I will tell you that if you ever have a chance to visit a battlefield like that, um, it is a sobering experience to see it in real life, to see how giant the objective that these men had um, given the 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 to, to take that that beach and to storm the beach and take that uh, land that high ground that was occupied by a in, an entrenched enemy that was prepared for them that were very good at what they did they knew what they were doing the, uh, the Germans were um, very smart and excellent. Uh, Soldiers and um, down to um, their their strategies that they had in place. So, you know, this was uh, this is something to see. So when I think of strategy, I'm like, okay, the strategy is we are going to get we're gonna we're gonna um, win this war. Um, but the first thing that we're going to do is we have to get our guys on the ground. So that's our strategy. We're going to we're going to invade Germany from the ground. We need ground troops. So that's how we're going to beat Hitler. We're going to you know we need our guys on the ground. So that's the overall you know one of the main goals. Then the strategy is okay. We're going to find a place on the coast of France that's going to let us insert you know hundred thousand people, and we're going to do that. And we're, we've done our studies now, and we decided it's going to be Normandy, France, Omaha Beach. That's where we're going to go, and, and sword and gold and all these different areas. And so that was the strategy. This is how we're going to get our people on the ground. Uh, we can't drop that many people by plane. We have to put them you know, on the beach somewhere. And so that's the strategy. Now, the tactics of that are... Now down to, okay, this boat, you go here. And this crew, you go here and shoot this emplacement. And we're going to fly over top and take all these sorts of pictures. And we're going to send frogmen in before and clear the um, the uh, the mines and all of the obstacles on the beach before we land our crafts. And then we're going to go, you know, we need to build a bunch of boats in um, over in America. And we're going to bring those boats and uh, over and they're just going to be used for this one thing going from the 
you know, 500 yards off the shore onto shore. That's all they're used for. These, these Higgin boats is what they call them, disposable boats, basically. We need thousands of these boats. And uh, we need to re-engineer a couple different... So they had all their tactics. These were the specific things that needed to be done to achieve the larger goal. And those were your battle plans. Those are like when you look at the maps of the day, you know, the very detailed, it's it's the like in the military, that's the military view of it. If you're on a sports team, it's the play that you have. Like this is what we're going to, we're going to do a flea flicker, we're going to do a Statue of Liberty play. Um, that is the tactics. So these are the plays that you're calling in the field that have a very specific, like measurable result in a specific period of time. And you're able to look at it and go, this is succeeding or this is not succeeding. You get a sense right away what's working and what's not working. Um, so you, this is on, on their own measurements of tactics aren't really a clear indication of success or failure of the whole strategy yet. So you're saying, okay, my I got 47 like um, stra- tactics I need to execute to uh, uh, see the strategy all the way through. And so, you know, halfway through, I've got 20 of them done. Uh, another 10 are failing. Another 10 are are succeed are uh, over. Am I am I uh, through my strategy? Am I getting to my strategy? Is that happening? Am I being successful or failing at it? So it's not exactly clear. This is the, this is called the fog of war. This is not exactly clear yet um, that the strategy itself and the objectives that inform those KPIs or key performance indicators are really um, you know working or or a correct or appropriate measuring the KPIs help determine the success of the strategies. Tactics can measure them in terms of the cost or timeliness. Uh, but by how well they're aligned to the strategies that they were meant to fulfill isn't exactly clear all the time, right? So what what I'm saying is a lot of times there's a lot of people in your organization. I got strategy A, but I have a tactic team B that has to go and actually execute. And sometimes the two don't see eye to eye or understand completely um, the whole goal or objective. Um, and communication is missing uh, between the teams. And this happens all the time. At lots of organizations, a boss may say something like, hey, we're going to, you know, we want to revamp our um our organization and uh, he may use some terms or she may use some terms that um, the tactical execution team has no idea what they mean or they may mean different things to different people. And so the tactics don't always align up with the strategy. And uh, so, uh, you know, I can have a lot of disconnections. And so a a big part of the challenge, especially in modern business, uh, in matrixed organizations where they're very sophisticated or complicated uh, in terms of the way you organize yourselves, uh, it's not a top down anymore. So it's not like the boss tells the subordinate, you do this because this is the strategy. And then it's not that military structure. A lot of organizations don't have that. They kind of have this kind of open, at least the ones that I've worked with have a very open kind of strategy uh, process. And so sometimes the tactics don't always support the strategy very well. And uh, so you have to remember, you know, these two work together. And if they're not aligned, if I didn't uh, uh, oversee my strategic initiatives were actually devolved into the appropriate tactics, uh, I could have a total miss. Could have a total miss, and everybody down at the tactical level is like, "No, we have we have changed all of our goals, but the the strategy never gets done." 
the strategy never gets executed because there is a disconnect. I see this all the time. I, I'll tell you, people, this is one thing in a giant organization. Uh, every every company has this challenge. Uh, you have people that come up to middle management, and uh, that's kind of the level that I'm in. It's in the middle management level. And uh, the middle managers are the ones that do all the tactics. They're the ones that, exec- that execute. They're the ones that develop the plans to do the work. And then they have the, you know, the individuals underneath them to go and, you know, make it happen and to set the goals for each one of those folks individually and to go and, you know, write up all those individual, how do we go take that field type of a thing, right? You have the middle management team that's able to do that. What happens a lot of organizations is middle management's never done the work down below. So you, you may have, you may have, we have to see this all the time. Um, you know, I'm in the sales part of Microsoft and I, I don't want to be um, telling tales out of order, but it, it wouldn't be surprising to anybody that works for a large organization that you have a lot of people in the middle that manage sales team that have never sold. They have an MBA. They have, um, you know, some uh, they've gone through school. They've looked at sales, but they've never actually executed on a sales plan personally. So they don't really understand the effectiveness of their their direction sometimes. This happens all the time. So anyways, remembering that these two things work together means that the organization to realize all of these goals to be effective actually have to work together. They have to communicate really well, not only from top to bottom, like this is my goal, make it happen. And then tell me when you're done. Like that's, that's some top down orgs are that way. They don't want to get involved. You know, the top people don't want to get involved in the tactics. And the bottom people are often, when I say the bottom, like the doers, are often disconnected from what those strategic goals. What is my place in this? Am I just, you know, what? how do, how do I fit? And, you know, is the tactics that my middle management come up with is actually going to be effective or not? So this happens. This happens all the time in the United States military. And I keep going back to this because military is a really good one to use because it's one of the, you know, success and failure is giant. And then so the, the, the stakes in that game are huge and they're very public. So during the World War II, early on in World War II, when the military figured out we're going to have to put a million guys on the battlefield to fight two wars, This two different fights. They have the Japanese and the Germans we and the Italians. We have, this is going to be a mess. And so we don't have enough qualified management people. Any, not enough in the, in the United States military. The managers are the second lieutenants and the lieutenants. They organize like the, um, the, the, the tactics on the field. You know, they're the ones that go, okay, my little platoon has to, um, you know, go and do take this hill. And so here's how I'm going to do that. And so they go to, you know, leaders candidate school, um, you know, officers candidate school, and then they, you know, learn all of these management techniques and um, battlefield tactic techniques, and then they send them out. And so in three months, 90 days, they were sending these people out to lead a platoon and out, or, uh, you know, their units. And so these lieutenants would show up on the field of battle in the middle of, you know, uh, war and uh they were supposed to lead the troops and we saw this also happen in in vietnam and the uh these uh 
these guys, they call them 90 day wonders. They like all of a sudden they show up and they're like, okay, I'm the boss. I'm in charge of this group of soldiers. Now the soldiers that carry the guns and go out and put their bodies on the line. These guys have been fighting for, let's say a year. Some of them are career soldiers. Like that's their career. They've been doing this for 20 years already. And you know, some of those guys were in world war one, then in world war two, or were, uh, when they were in world war two, they stayed in the military for another, you know, 15 years and kept fighting. And so they were master sergeants and they, they never became officers, but stayed soldiers down on the, like the ground, the ground pounders, the grunts, you know, and, uh, those folks would look at that 90 day wonder and just go, you are a moron. You have no idea what really works out here. We're going to tell you what really works out here. So sometimes there can be just a giant disconnection in organizations where they emphasize the education over experience. And that's a whole nother discussion. But, uh, what we find is that experience beats education pretty much every time when it comes to this kind of stuff. Anyway, so so what are some of the key takeaways here when we're talking about this? So we've got this problem-solving framework. Define those objectives. Put a strategy in place and develop tactics. That is your problem-solving framework. Three things. Objectives. What's the strategy of those objectives? And what are the tactics underneath those objectives? And... Um, what is the most important uh, character for then a leader in given what I've just uh, mentioned about our 90 day wonders is humility. That's right. That even in the military, somebody who is just showing up and telling everybody what to do because they're in charge. That's the first person to get shot in the back by their own people. Like the most important characteristic for people in leadership is to listen to the people that have actually done this before, that know what the heck they're doing, and that can tell you how effective something is going to be or not be based on their experience. So experience matters when you're down at the tactics. Execution really is so important. It's the most important characteristic of a leader is humility, believe it or not. It's also critical that um, you have the ability to speak up when you know your leader is making a mistake. So you have to be able to be given. An environment has to be in such such a way that a person that is experienced, that is lower in the totem pole, that's a lower down in the, that's the grunt on the ground, has that ability and that freedom to speak up when you know the leader's making a mistake. Because, you know, that, again, in the military costs lives. And so um, in our world, it doesn't cost lives necessarily, but it certainly is um, a thing. If we're not speaking up, it's just a waste of time then. We're not going to be as effective as we want to be. Um, when you have problems and you're caught up in something like overthinking one of the uh, or something that's really bothering us from uh, that's holding us back, one of the best things we can do is take some kind of action that moves us forward. Uh, we don't want to stay ta- stagnant and dwell on something that's happening right now. We want to change the story. And so this is one thing that happens all the time. Tactics and even sometimes the strategy stalls out. It stalls out and it stalls out. It's not being as effective as we thought. And because the tactic is the lowest level of action, 
we have to be able to be super flexible on executing on the tactic. So when we're caught up into like, well, this was my plan and we're overly invested in a certain tactic, like, oh, um, you know, we need to, you know, execute this way. And then when we see like that is not working, we need to get off of that. We need to like not hold on so tightly um, to those actions, those tactics. We need to be able to move on to a better set of action because what is the most important thing here down at the tactical level? The tactical level is we want to keep motion going and action. So we do want to have momentum and that's what we're trying to gain. And so if we stop in the middle, then we lose momentum. So what I was telling you at the beginning of this conversation was we don't want to have uh, momentum and action without a plan. But once we have strategy in place and we're executing on the the uh, tactics the last thing that you want to do is stop. So once you start getting momentum, you don't want to stop the momentum going. You may, um, it's like um, the jujitsu move, or I call it the ninja move, right? It's that ninja move when, you know, something, you get in the fight and here comes the, here comes the guy that's, you know, 20, a uh, hundred pounds heavier than you. I want to redirect that momentum coming at me. I can't take that thing straight on. When I get into the fight, sometimes you can't take the thing straight on and you realize that really quickly. And this tactic is not working. Okay, I just need to redirect. I need to keep the same momentum going, but I need to push it in a different direction. I need to get off, as they say in fighting, I need to get off the X. I need to get off the point of engagement because that's where all now the fire and attention is coming. And if I'm not winning that fight, if I'm still there, I'm going to get creamed. And so I need to move off the X. I need to get people off the point of engagement into an alternative position. Find a better fighting position. And so that is the ability for your tactical commanders, the people out on the field, the smart people that have been executing stuff over a long period of time. They need to be given that opportunity and flexibility to move and to make adjustments and not be so tied to whatever the tactic that the head shed or the, the MBAs came up with in you know your headquarters. Let the move keep keep the movement going, right? We need uh, protocols in our lives for dealing with these things. We need to have those protocols in place for how to uh, get over those psychological challenges. The things that, like, this was my tactic. Hey, I was going to get married, but you know what? I'm finding that this person across the table is not going to work, or. Um, even in our own, like I said, even in our own lives, we can use these same principles often. You know, the death of somebody really close to us or being fired from our job, being dumped, you know, we have to get over this when we're dumped. You have to recognize that the person who dumped you is not the person you thought they were, right? They're a different person. And so you have to adjust your thinking. They're a little different. Your idea of who that person is. Uh, needs to change completely. Stop worrying about the things that don't matter a year from now. Like, because it's not going to matter anymore. That person's moved on. You need to move on. And a year from now, it's not going to matter. So that's the idea of letting go quickly. There's a actually uh, the samurai ethic that you're going to make a decision that uh, in seven breaths, you know, like within seven breaths, any decision needs to be made. 
it's really an interesting idea, but there's some brevity to this. Once you make that decision, you can't go back on the decision. So you can make another decision later, but um, but you're you're not going to just let that uh, decision just derail you and get stuck there. And that's what happens with so many organizations and companies. They just keep hammering at the same problem over and over and over again and not, um, you know, not moving on. This is uh, I, I talked about this in one of my very first podcasts. This comes into uh, the idea that of Ahab and uh, the white whale. Like we have these white whales in our lives that we think are so important. They're the biggest thing. They drive us to try to be successful and we can be successful. And then when we're ultimately faced with the white whale, it kills us. It becomes our demise and we take people with us. And uh, this is happens all the time in business that uh, Ahab would have been better off if you just want to let it go and go find other whales. But no, he was maniacally uh, following after the white whale and he lied to his his crew uh, about that. And he made a wreck of many, many dead pe- of, of other people's lives as a result of that. And we see this in business all the time. They have an idea or a goal. And that becomes the thing that uh, drives them um, and uh, the market changes underneath them, but they don't change their vision or goal. And so they're now pursuing things that are stupid, that don't even make any sense anymore. Um, I I have a, I've lived through this in two different companies uh, when we were on-premise software was a big thing. Obviously, I mean, the software and the technology business. So you have software that exists back in the olden days, you would buy a computer system. And if you ran a business, you would have a a room of, we all know that, the BLR, the blinking light room, right? In the back where all the lights are and all the servers and computers are in the back room. And that's where your business applications would run. And those would run a certain way. And I need a certain infrastructure for that. I needed to have IT people. I needed to have um, uh, continuous power. I needed to have a very um, sophisticated internal physical network to connect all the computers together. And I needed to have um, a lot of compute power on the desktop. And then I bought the software straight up. I just would pay for it. And then it would go on that machine and then maybe in a couple of years I might upgrade but probably wouldn't I would just keep it there if I had problems I would just call into the software company and and whatnot that was that's called on-premise uh, software it's now on-premise now the software business decided a long time ago that that uh, that is a little bit of a problem um, because what happens is uh, you know uh, new people come in new developers come in and they have ideas and they want to build new stuff and uh, yet the they have to then go out and sell that new stuff to customers and make them upgrade and then it's very painful for a customer like once the system is working why change it I don't want to change it it's working right now why are you making me upgrade to a new version because it's working right there and they're like well your business is changing and the industries are changing and you're not you know the versions of that software support stuff from five ten years ago but now you have new demands on your business and you're not keeping up with that yeah that's right we should um do that so let's get new software well guess what we're not going to sell you software anymore that runs on your building 
we're going to keep track of that software ourselves. And then you just have a network connection to our software. And kind of like Facebook, you just log in, username and password, and you just log in and the application will be there for you. And you don't need any of those uh, machines in the back room anymore. And, uh, you know, whenever, um, instead of it being big upgrades every year, you know, or every three or four years, we're just going to just continuously, as we release new features, you're going to see little changes to the software over time. And uh, it's way more stable that way, too. Uh, it's not a big expense. And then you just keep paying for the software every you know couple months instead of like every four years or three years. And we'll manage all the hardware that you don't have to do buy any servers anymore. Just, you know, your fi- people, in fact, don't even need to be in your building. They can go work at home. And so all those companies that uh, have adapted that kind of software, you know, they 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 are benefiting during COVID times because the software didn't exist in a building somewhere. It was a subscription. Uh, And then all of the companies that um, like myself, who were really good at selling on premise software, all the salespeople are and all of the technical people that know the old version of the software really, really well. Here comes the new online version of the software. And it's like completely different. It doesn't exactly work the same the old way did. And it's a different version. And I have to learn all this new stuff. And it's like, I don't want to learn all this stuff. I liked the other stuff. It worked really well. I was an expert at it. And so these are the kind of things that happen. We um, we have to stop worrying about, you know, the the thing of wanting it to be the way that it used to be. I need to look ahead and go, what's going to matter a year from now, five years from now? So whether that's a boyfriend or girlfriend or a fiance that dumps you today, it's like, I don't want to go back to that. I need to look forward to that. I lose a job today. Um, that is hard. Yeah, I can get, but I can get stuck in like all of the, man, that company sucked and I was no good and I'm never qualified. And, you know, it's because I'm, I don't have a college degree or because I'm a woman or because I'm a minority. All these things end up like getting us stuck on those problems uh, that became barriers for us. So, you know, we want to uh, move forward. We want to need to keep that forward momentum going when it comes to those tactics of, you know, our job and our life as a whole, right? We as humans have a tendency to assign importance in the present moment to things that actually don't really matter in the grand scheme of things. So, we in some ways need to cultivate this ability to attach, detach ourselves from what's going on and look at things from an outside perspective. You know, the better you get at life, uh, the more you're really able to detach from your own emotion filled storm of ego like that keeps us there. Uh, the more I can get this out of my head and take steps back and look at what's actually occurring that's going to give me better decisions moving forward and where we're going to be able to make better decisions moving forward. You know, that's a real part of this. So, you know, tactics and stuff like that in in business and in your nonprofit organization, that is one thing you want to have strategy and tactics. But a lot of this applies to our lives, too. A lot of this applies to our lives, too. I work uh, with a lot of folks that have come out of prison that are trying to find a new life in this world. They are convicted felons. And frankly, people, it is hard um, for two reasons. One is the, the deck in many ways, in many jobs, is stacked against us when we come from that 
background. Uh, because one of the first questions they are going to ask you, are you a felon? And they're going to ask that on the job like application is going to be right on the job application. And so you better have a story. You better be prepared for that. But actually, that's not the biggest barrier that I found uh, that most people have. Actually, the, the barrier that most people have is the inability to get beyond that from their own personal viewpoint. They look at their past as defining and being such a limit on what they're able to do in life. And so it's hard to then imagine a future that's different than the past. It's hard to imagine being outside of the constraints uh, that have been placed on them because of those decisions that, that, that they've made. And that's hard. That actually is probably a bigger barrier to people starting a new business or getting into a company and going for it. That mental barrier and that kind of emotional connection to things that occurred in the past, that is so strong, it keeps them tied down to that, right? The more we can get out of our head and take a step back and look at what's actually occurring in the world and in our lives, the better decisions we're going to make. And that is really hard to do. Sometimes it's hard to step outside of ourselves to seek a different perspective. And sometimes we are the worst judges of ourselves. We're so critical of ourselves. We're so down on like our failures. And we just point to them as like, well, that's the reason why, because this happened or because I did that. My past defines now my future. My past becomes the biggest constraint There's nothing you can do about the past. You can make amends, you can apologize, but you have to forgive yourself and move forward often. That's that's a big, hard thing to do for a lot of people to get out of their head, take that step back and look at what's actually occurring. Because what's actually occurring is there's a world, a market out there, if I'm looking for a job, that's trying to hire you. There's a place that has that that I believe God has as a destiny for you and that your past, it, they don't care about your past. They don't care about what you did. They care about what you're going to do for them now, what opportunities and skills you bring to the table today and where you're going and that forward looking positive mental attitude that gets you that hustle, that um, excitement, that creativity, that humility that you bring every day. And that is what a company's hired. And there's a place for you. And everything that you get that's a no that looks back and says, well, you were a felon, so let's give you a try or something. Eh, I don't even want that. You know what? Because in my mind, I'm not a felon anymore. And I won't let anybody put me in that box anymore. I am gone. I'm different from that person. I have learned from that past and I'm moving forward in my life. And so whether that's an addiction that you've had in the past or whether that's a conviction that you've had in the past or that those are just bad decisions in your career or problems with the way that your business failed in the past, you can't let those failures define you as who you are in the future because you are somewhere in the future and you look much better than you look right now. <laughs> So anyways, I I didn't expect this uh, to take a spiritual turn today, but I'm so passionate about this. I am so passionate about this that we cannot let um, what we think of ourselves even, um, if it's a negative way, 
to to hold us back because that is what does so often hold us uh, hostage. Uh, because the mark, job market today is as good as it's ever been in the United States. Uh, and uh, there are so many programs and opportunities, if you're not taking advantage of them, uh, to go from point A to point B, uh, I mean, then you're just, <laughs> you're not trying hard enough, I would say. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you're you so much more than what you think you are. You're so much more than what you think you are. Uh, the last one I'm going to end on, and uh, well, I, I'm going to, I'll talk about it in the stack of stuff here in a minute. So uh, I got a couple things on uh, equality and job wage stuff. Then we'll, we'll mention that and we'll talk about the stack of stuff and that's it for the, uh, the idea of what's strategy versus tactics. I hope this is really helpful for you. You know what? I really appreciate y'all and I appreciate the feedback uh, that, that I get on the podcast and um, let's uh, move over to the next uh, phase of the podcast, which is the, uh, the uh, stack of stuff right after this important message from uh, our sponsor. Thank you. All right. And we're back. And we're back. There you go. All right. So now what are we, what is the thing? What are we doing now? What is the next thing? Well, the next thing on the line for today is called the stack of stuff. And the stack of stuff is a awesome collection of current events and uh, sales coaching and technical information that's available on my podcast website, which is called hustleisthehack.com. You can go there and you can see the um, hustle is the hack stack of stuff. And the stack of stuff allows uh, me throughout my uh, day to kind of curate a whole set of kind of what's going on, what is happening out there in the world around us. And uh, that what we talked about is the meta, like what is the what is the macroeconomics that are happening and how can I think about it? You know, how does it impact my job every day? And, and I want to be ready for some of these changes, you know, that uh, because and uh, not just changes, because it's not just like good changes or bad changes. It's just changes that are going to happen as a result of changes in the economy or something more uh something more broadly, you know, that, that happens, right? So you have different things that are happening and I want to be able to take advantage of those changes as they occur and be positioned as they grow. Because if I'm not, you know, like the world is just going to move past me and I, I want to be able to do that. So I'm going to go to the stack of stuff. Now, one of the, one of the things right now that is like, because I'm in tech, um, I wanted to talk about um, what's referred to as the metaverse. Like, what in the heck is the metaverse? And when I think of the metaverse conversation, I want to think about how I would explain this to my mom. Like, because my mom knows Zipola about computers. She has never owned, well, actually, I shouldn't say that. She actually does have a computer. Uh, she checks her Facebook and stuff like that, and she listens to my podcast. Hi, Mom, how are you doing? But, you know, she is not a technology person. And so when I think of what's going to have to happen with the metaverse taking over the world, if you um, listen to the news and 
the multi billion dollars that are that is being invested in the me- the metaverse, uh, it is going to be. I want to talk a little bit about that. So that's one thing we want to talk about the metaverse. Uh, also, want to just keep um, talking about jobs and market watch and uh, what is uh, out there in the job market because I know a lot of folks um, are thinking about moving jobs and stuff like that so I like to kind of keep that one in there uh, in the hopper in the hopper and always come back to uh, come back to that of course I could always talk about energy because that's one of the big areas I think just drives so much drives our economy but the thing I want to talk about First is DoorDash. Yes, DoorDash, right. So I have not mentioned this. DoorDash is making employees that, um, uh, (laughs) uh, making their employees take out deliveries. So a DoorDash employee making $400,000 a year complained about the company-wide initiative requiring that he personally make one delivery a month. This is what happened. So this is in Business Insider. So the the employee, um, uh, so DoorDash, it just brought it to the news that under the DoorDash has a a program called WeDash program, which includes everybody in the corporate office has to deliver uh, as a delivery driver at least once a month. It's a job requirement that you go out and do a DoorDash delivery once a month. If we can't deliver, um, then they have to choose another experience like shadowing a customer service staff or something like that. The WeDash is a company flagship employee engagement program which aims at uh, having workers learn firsthand how the technology products we build empower local economies, which in turn help us build a better product. And uh, so this is a big deal. This is a big deal. I just love this initiative uh, that DoorDash is doing. They are making their employees go out. If you're a senior developer making a half million bucks a year or run the marketing department or HR or whatever, you're out um, delivering social um uh, you're out delivering food, uh, uh, going to McDonald's and picking food up for one and delivering it to one of your neighbors using the application. I just love the fact that they are making people that are working in the middle part of the organization that don't actually know how to do this work, go out and do it. Um, because they're the ones that make those decisions about uh, how the applications work and perform, and they're making employee uh, policy decisions and all of that. And, and all, if you don't uh, have a customer, you uh, don't know what you're talking about. And so um, this is where this is what I was saying earlier. Experience can beat education every day. And, you know, you want to know the smartest person in the room um, on how the application works. Uh, don't talk to the guy who wrote the program. Talk to the guy who runs the program every day. So I love this. Um, this is a longstanding kind of belief that I have. If you are at a company and you service customers Every manager, when I worked at AT&T, this was a requirement. Every manager has a customer. Like you have to, whether, I don't care if you're in HR, if you are in shipping and receiving, you are going to be involved in some customer deal. And you have to be able to, at the end of the year, say, yep, I was involved in these three customers, or I was the executive sponsor for these six deals, or whatever that is. And uh, that basically keeps you, 
uh, connected to customers. And that is a mantra. I think every organization, if you're not uh, customer obsessed and customer driven, uh, you're, you're probably not going to be long for this world. And uh, what's going to happen is, you you know, customer demands change. You don't know enough of them. Uh, you're, you're making decisions that impact them every day, stupid policy decisions without thinking about how it's going to impact customers and, and the people that actually talk to your customers. So, so go out, have some customers, <laughs> you know, go out, go out and talk to some customers, man. And uh, so that's, that should be a rule. That should be a rule. If you, so here's a warning sign. If you're a, a, a manager and you don't talk to customers, you're probably will be out of a job soon. Like that. If, if, if I'm running a company, that's the mantra. If you're not talking to customers, then what in the heck are you doing here? Like, why, why are you, what purpose do you fill? So anyways, I just thought that was really interesting that DoorDash is making their employees um, compliant by doing that. You have to go out and del- make a delivery every month. That's right. You have to do that. That's right. All right. Another thing um, that uh, happened over the the last couple months is there's there's some big mega moves that happened uh, in the video game business. And if you are not uh, in the software business, um, you're probably, you know, thinking that, you know, video games is just, you know, just a thing. It's just a passing fad, a passing fancy. And I'm here to tell you that uh, the video game business is bigger than Hollywood. It's okay. So think of all of the social impact that happens around, um, you know, a big movie like Titanic that comes around. Okay. It makes a billion dollars. Woohoo. Isn't that awesome? And, uh, you know, that's all great. And the the masters of the universe or the galaxies of the guardians, um, all of those, you know, movies have just this broad social impact. Well, a broader social impact in terms of eyeballs um, sitting in front and learning and interacting is video games. Okay. Uh, love it or don't love it. Um, this is replacing television and movies for a large part of our country. Uh, actually, a large part of your uh, anybody under the age of 40 um, is uh, involved, uh, has video games at, at part of their life. It's part of a lifestyle choice that people are making uh, to instead of sitting in front of the what we used to call the boob tube, the television and spending when I was a kid, we spent eight hours like that was the big Kids are spending so much time watching television. You know, the average household watches eight hours of television a day. And now, you know, we're complaining that kids spend three hours, you know, online playing video games. Uh, So it's like, well, yeah, guess what? The video game kids, uh, they're actually using their brains. Uh, They're um, engaging some hand-eye coordination. Uh, They're learning stories about morals and um, values. uh, And they're able to engage things like their imagination and uh, interact with kids and other people, young people or older people all over the world. And uh, so it's um, it's very similar to reading a book. You're participating, though, in the book now. So I'm writing a story. I'm part of a, an adventure that is taking me down a path and uh, decisions I make impact other decisions down. It's really interesting. Now, what I wanted to say about so that's one of the sub text of of uh, this so now you got to hear me rant you know about video games and why i think they're um an important part and you can't just like go well it's just video games don't be good it's a it's such a giant business um and to give you a sense of scale sony bought a company uh recently um that was pretty big 
pretty big. They spent $3 billion on acquiring a company called Bungie. Uh, Bungie was a company that actually Microsoft owned at one point in time and then it spun it off. Um, they wrote the um, Halo and a couple other games and stuff like that. And Sony recently bought them. And think of these game uh, companies like uh, movie studios. They're like their own little movie studios. They have, a, they're, in fact, they're organized like a movie studio. They're production, art directions, uh, actors. There's all, it's just like putting on a movie. It's a very similar kind of structure. And so Bungie, this uh, production company that's made, um, you know, their companies um, a lot of money that they, they, they made a ton of money and tons of games and had millions of people on there. They decided out of that $3.6 billion, they're actually going to spend $1.2 billion on just retention of the staff. Now, this is a big deal. Sony's going to spend $1.2 billion just on staff bonuses and retention programs to keep people on staff after they hire built by the company. So they're going to buy the company and they're going to, you know, put stock options and all this stuff in place to keep people around. And so they're adding to that money. $1.2 $1.2 billion in incentives to keep the, the staff hanging around and building awesome stuff. So that is really interesting. I think that just tells the story of how important, two, two things. One is how important the that industry is from a business standpoint. Uh, you know, anytime you get into $1 billion of cash and then you decide to give that uh, to people in payroll is I'm good. For, I'm all for that. I'm all for that. Like I wish more companies did that kind of stuff. And I think this is the shape of things to come. Um, a lot of companies are announcing, hey, we're, we're raising the base salary of people. We're working to retain them because the areas of tech growth right now, especially in tech, like this is one of them where the video game business right now is going through the roof. Uh, because of people spending more time and the aging uh, population aging out and the younger population getting bigger, having more income, deciding this is the place where I want to spend my entertainment time and energy and money. And you don't can't sneeze at a $1.2 billion, man. I wish I was working for Bungie right now. I remember when Bungie was teeny tiny. Really, they were very small. They were very, very small at one point. This is before Halo, before Microsoft and, and Halo. Uh, and uh, I know a lot of friends that they had a couple games that they made. They um, had come up, up with a game from the Apple a computer. I remember it's called Marathon. And it was, a, it was an online game that you could play with uh, Apple computers that on, you know, uh, networked and stuff like that and drive around and shoot each other and stuff like that. It was pretty cool. And, uh, you know, so now they're just a just giant, giant, giant company. But at the time they were like, there's like a hundred people that work there or something like that. I had some friends that, that knew people at, uh, at Bungie at the time. So it was really interesting. Anyways, this gets to the, 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 um, the other job, uh, one on the stack of stuff is the best job in America pays $145,000, has 14,000 job openings, and is offering a generous work-life balance. And this is uh, from MarketWatch. Uh, this is a, uh, uh, a glass door, which is a kind of a, an anonymous, like if you want to go in and research a job, you should look at this. If you're looking at a job, you need to go and look now before you start applying for jobs. Because what you want to do is you want to find out what those jobs pay, not what they're offering right now. 
Like, unless you're working in a factory line, which is one thing, and if you're going to do that, great. If that's your entry level, great. But you always want to understand what the potential earning and the overall job satisfaction is of any job and kind of what are those jobs. And Glassdoor is one of those places that is really good to find that because people post up their job like this, how much I got paid and reviews of jobs that they had. And so you can kind of see what companies are awesome and which companies suck. And, uh, you know, so you're walking in informed. So it's like a review site for companies uh, hiring. Anyways, it's called Glassdoor is a place to go. Um, so job openings, of course, are up. You know, jobs are up. The U.S. economy added 678,000 jobs in February. Um, so the unemployment rate dropped down again, now to 38 Now, I have done some work with the unemployment people. When you get to 2%, that's considered full employment in the United States. So any market that has 2% unemployment, there's not one person that could have a job. And that's because 2% of the people are always between jobs. Um, They they got let go or they quit and now they got injured. So this is people seeking work that can work. So if there, there's always about 2%, if, if you had full employment, it would be 2%. So we are so close to full employment here in the United States, 3.8. So um, your job, whatever you're hiring for, is in demand, unless you're, I don't know, <laughs> realistically. So uh, according to Glassdoor, the number one job on the list uh, pays 144,000 jobs. It has 14,000 current job openings with a job satisfaction rating of 4.1 out of 5. And this job, you spend uh, eight hours a day at work and uh, you don't want to be unhappy. So let's let's keep drilling into what is that job. That job they're saying is an enterprise architect. That is an enterprise architect. That's an IT job. That's basically what is a um, a fancy word for a systems analyst. Back in the olden days, that's what we would call this, an analyst. An enterprise architect is a person that looks at different applications that a company can run, and they kind of engineer how those applications will work together. So you can design those applications run on hardware and software and networks, And uh, so it requires you to have some technology understanding of the infrastructure of of how, you know, people get uh, uh, those things to work together. And it also requires the other part, the other skill, which is you have to work with people in the business to talk about what their digital strategy is. So it's really interesting. It's the tactician that goes and develops the plans for the business strategy. That's what an enterprise architect does. And uh, so it's not uh, uh, a super simple job. It can take several years of of training uh, if you were in a company and some work experience. Like, so this is, um, if you're on a career path to be enterprise architect, one, that doesn't require a college degree. I'm just here to tell you it doesn't require a college degree. I don't know if I could say this again, but nobody is going to ask you, do you have a college degree for this? Uh, that's not going to be uh, the thing. It's going to be based on your experience. Now, if you decide, hey, I'm going to go to MIT and study computer science, you uh, you, and I'm going to get a master's degree, 
in from um, uh, uh, master's degree in enterprise architecture from you are not going to have a problem getting a job right now of course you'll have spent four years in college and uh, if you went to the master's degree level you've probably spent two hundred and fifty thousand dollars on your um, complete education between bachelor's and master's degree Uh, uh, you know 150 200 grand is about what it would cost to do that it's going to take you about six years to finish that if you started when you're done now or you could just go out of high school, um, get a job at the entry level in IT, uh, which uh, might require a little bit of certification, maybe junior college. Uh, so, you know, spend about uh, 10 grand, uh, take some computer networking and system classes. You could even probably take those in high school. And then you go start working for a company to be their kind of IT infrastructure person setting up personal computers on the, on the, the, on the network. And then you follow the career path then from there, because you to be an enterprise architect, you need to know core um, IT. You need to know how networks work, how hardware and software is delivered um, and how applications work. And how do you learn that? You can learn that in a classroom or I can actually go to a company and actually just do that work. So I like the doing that work. Most people that are in the hiring role would rather have somebody out there doing that work. And um, and so you just go start doing the work. Just go out and find, um, you know, that's not the easiest thing to find those entry level jobs. It's going to take a little time. You, you have to take a crappy job maybe to start with for a small doctor's office or something like that. Uh, but, you know, you're starting. You're starting. And like we were talking about earlier, you're going to get that momentum going. And then you follow the career path from there. And I pretty much could guarantee, like, if you did a good job uh, there, you uh, could move forward and you could continue moving forward. And by the time that your peer who had decided to go to get his master's degree in enterprise architecture uh, eight years from now, um, that probably within about five years, you will have the all the skill set that it takes to be an enterprise architect uh, or pretty darn close to it. Um, So so. Uh, you'll have been financially way ahead of the guy getting the bachelor's degree and the, the master's degree, uh, at least financially. So anyways, so there's different uh, engineering. So IT has a lot of job openings right now. Some uh, 90% of the enterprise architects reported having access to work from home benefits. And that's true. Pretty much every job in IT today is you work at home, almost all of them. And uh, the next uh, Glassdoor uh, list was what's called a full stack engineer. Now, full stack engineers um, is similar to a enterprise architect in that you, whether you say full stack, that means you understand from top to bottom the full stack of an application. So it's not just the programming language, but also like the database sizing and the networking speeds and all that kind of stuff. That's the full stack. You're not just doing one thing. Uh, Full stack engineers, though, are primarily developers. So there are folks out on Amazon Web Services or Azure Web Services and uh, building uh, websites and applications, doing the actual building of the applications. The enterprise architects tells you what to do, and the uh, (laughs) full stack engineer builds and supports that. So those are the folks that develop the applications uh, for mobile or whatnot. And then there's another area called data scientists that pays on average $120,000 as a starting kind of thing. And those are the people that collect and analyze the data. This is a um, also a big area right now for, um, for getting out in um, a lot of demand out there. There's not enough data scientists out there. Data scientists take and rationalize 
the data that they collect, that gets collected. So we're talking earlier in the um, podcast about uh, KPIs and key performance indicators. Guess what? That's what a data scientist does. They kind of figure out where that data is. They pull those reports together and basically they're fancy report writers. And a data scientist can find all the inferences and use it to help predict the future of what's going to happen or the effort that it takes to deliver a certain uh, outcomes. It's a really interesting job. Data scientists uh, love math. They love doing all sorts of statistical analysis and using awesome tools to help with that. And they also can present data visually because that's really, really important. So they make all sorts of sophisticated graphs and stuff like that. It's really cool stuff um, that uh, that's happening. So, you know, the top 10 jobs in um, Glassdoor right now are IT related jobs. Now, there's several non-tech jobs made the top 50 list. Um, but so, you know, psychiatrists, for example, is number 22 of uh, psych psychologists and psychiatrists, you know, 22 and 23, human resource managers, 13, corporate recruiters, number 17, HR business partners, 39, you know, so that obviously what's happening is there's a lot of people moving jobs. And so the HR, because we have a corporate, you know, kind of hard to find people, these jobs are getting higher paid and there's uh, there's more work available for them. And so they're really well paid jobs too. And uh, because a lot of people are kind of the great resignation as people are (laughs) talking about and stuff like that. Now, a lot of the jobs are are, uh, two and a half um, employees want to work from home about two and a half days a week on an average, according to uh, Harvard Business Review recently. So job offerings work from home as a benefit really is a big thing now. So if you're looking at anything in I.T., you know, remote work is like happening. That's a big part of any IT company's uh, strategy now. Actually, many of them are just going to close their offices. Some of them are going to not close their offices and they want everybody to come back to work. Saw that Apple's requiring all their employees to go into the office once a week now. Um, I work for, you know, that big company in Seattle. Uh, They're just opening the campus and they're giving, you know, uh, people, I think I, Let's think about it. Within six months, we want to see people back, you know, probably a kind of a thing that they're not enforcing anything yet. But, you know, the the kind of the culture is switching to kind of figure out how you're going to have to pick what you want to do if you live in that area uh, or near an office. You have to pick now um, where you want to live or, or or work out of home or work out of the office. So. Anyways, I, you know, I just I'm always excited about talking about the the workplace opportunities because, again, I'm working in one of those industries where it is hard to find people and you just see opportunities all over the place. And at the same time, I'm talking to people that are like I was saying earlier that are coming out of prison that are like, hey, we can't find any work. You know, it's like, oh, dude. Come on, let's come on. Let's start talking about computers. You know, let's start talking about IT because there's a lot of work over here. You can work from home and it's great. So, all right. Anyways, that's the stack of stuff uh, for today. And again, we are going to coming to an end of the podcast. My name is uh, Pierre Hulsebus and this has been Hustle is the Hack which is the podcast that I do that you are listening to. And so how awesome is that, um, that we get to spend this time together? Um, I hope you enjoyed our time talking about strategy and tactics and how it can all work together. And uh, 
you know, just be thinking about your plan and uh, don't, uh, as they say, don't uh, plan to fail, but uh, a lot of people fail to plan. So, and uh, just keep looking forward, like keep the momentum going. You're so much better. You're so much more capable than you think. And uh, let's go take advantage of that. Let's go take advantage of that. All right. You guys have a great day, and I will talk to you very soon.